thoughts I cannot say to you If I don't say the words that maybe it's not Good morning, good morning. Welcome to NUFC Matters with me, Steve Wraith. Delighted to see we're joined once again by Ben Jacobs. How are you, Ben? Good morning. I'm good. How are you? Very good, Ben. And uh, the, the jumper's out, Ben. It must be getting colder. It is. I'm sure it's the same up in Newcastle. It's I've got the hoodie. I've got the hoodie on. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, not always, good. No, it's not. We've got I think one summer hour. down south lasts for three weeks. Summer up north lasts for <laughs> two weeks. Summer in Scotland, where I'm at the moment, lasts for about five days. <laughs> Yeah, you're not wrong, mate. You're not wrong. Okay, we've got an hour uh, of chat about Newcastle United. And of course, today is match day. Uh, Brentford at home, 5.30 kickoff live on Sky. And uh, wow, we've got so many topics we could talk about today. And I, I want to start with the midfield, Ben, because obviously the midfield is something which people have been picking at, criticising, looking at, uh, dissecting, you know, our own fans, you know, pundits, you name it. Uh, Tonali came in, big money signing, uh, you know, somebody who you know blossomed at Milan and is now hoping to blossom in the Premier League. But uh, he's been thrown into a midfield which was a very successful midfield last season. Um, he's been stuck in the middle of uh, Bruno and uh, Joe Linton. Longstaff, of course, had a pre-season injury, which meant that he was mm-hmm. unavailable for selection at the start of the season, which meant Tonali has come straight in. Uh, the first game, it looked as if nothing could go wrong. Uh, a 5-1 win against Aston Villa. But following on from that, we knew that the fixture list was was a cruel fixture list for Newcastle. Uh, a narrow defeat by Man City, uh, an incredible defeat against Liverpool at home, which should never have happened, and then a slight collapse against a, a, a very good Brighton team. It's got to be said. So alarm bells ringing in certain quarters at Tyneside, uh, but the question marks definitely pointed at the midfield. And Tonali in international football this week uh, sustained, you know, a slight injury. Eddie Howe confirmed that yesterday. Um, should be available, we would imagine, today. But whether he's fit enough to start, who knows? Um, Longstaff's fully fit now. And a lot of the press yesterday at the press conference, I noticed, were pushing the Longstaff narrative. Um, is he good enough to, to go straight back in? Is he fit enough to go straight back in? Um, Eddie, Eddie, as always, playing his cards close to his chest. But... What's your feeling on this midfield three? First of all, do you think that midfield three moving forward in the long term of Bruno, of Tonali and Longstaff can play together? Yeah, I think they can. And there's going to be a period of chemistry that develops naturally. And that's the same with any midfield, but especially when you put in a young new signing with a big price tag and Tonali is versatile. But with that versatility, the downside can sometimes be that you need time to ultimately get up to speed in whatever position is asked of you. I think every time we say versatility, we kind of associate that with the positive, and it is. But in this Eddie Howe 4-3-3, I think that Tonali will be asked to play a defined role. And given that he's effectively a number eight, but can also play a number six and has had in his career quite a bit of freedom, he's going to have to get used to that dynamic, particularly with Bruno, to make sure that They both don't push forwards at the same time. They cover for each other. And obviously within that three, only one of them can play in the central position, which is likely to be Bruno. So then when you look at Longstaff, there's, I think, a little bit more flexibility, which is different from versatility. And maybe the dynamic in the short term between Longstaff and Bruno Guimaraes playing together is going to be more preferable for Newcastle. But I also think that not too much should be made yet due to the fact that It's the early part of the season. Let's not forget that Newcastle didn't start brilliantly last season. And then about four or five games in, they suddenly started going 
and pushing towards that top four. And by the time we got to the World Cup, it was a situation where Newcastle looked like very strong favourites or credible candidates for Champions League football. So there's no need for a mini meltdown at this point, especially because crucially, as you rightly pointed out, we're in a situation where the fixtures simply haven't been kind to Newcastle United. They were absolutely phenomenal in the opening game against Aston Villa and everybody maybe felt like that was setting the tone. This was a Newcastle side that would win comfortably, that would score a ton of goals, that would make St James's Park a fortress. And then from there, it hasn't quite gone according to plan, but there's no shame in a 1-0 defeat to Manchester City. I think that's probably the first thing to say. The Liverpool game was one of those quirks of football where although Liverpool deserve huge credit for the late goals that they scored, 99 times out of 100, Newcastle win that game. And then, as you say, away at Brighton is never easy. So now it's about beating Brentford and heading into the Champions League with something positive. And then perhaps if there's still this issue in midfield, Eddie Howe can revisit it. But one of the challenges with midfield in a 4-3-3 is just that there's one less spot. So Bruno Guimaraes is always going to take one of those spots. And then it's about who else you play. Because last season, for example, Joe Linton moved into an advanced position but he comes back into the three of the midfield, not the three of the attack. So then you suddenly have a situation where you're looking for one more spot, but you're also looking for a dynamic. Because if Bruno and Joe Linton play in a midfield, which is one possibility, then obviously Joe Linton likes to get forwards. Bruno likes to get forwards. Tanali likes to get forwards. It's a very attack-minded system. Do you need someone with more defensive qualities? And that's where they may say to Tanali, we actually want you to be more like a number six. They may say the same to Bruno, but they may say the same to Joe Linton as well, who obviously can also play in that role too. When he first joined Newcastle, he was asked to be much more rigid, a central midfielder that didn't really get as box to box. So there's a lot of debate, I think, not just about who goes into the midfield, but what role they're given, because everybody in that three in midfield likes to get forwards, can get forwards, but they can't all get forwards. Otherwise, Newcastle are going to get exposed. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. Longstaff, though, got pushed forward quite a bit by the press yesterday. Uh, he will be chomping at the bit. He's a local lad. He wants to get, you know, he wants to get back in the team, of course. And, and he was almost like, he was like the glue that held the midfield together. I know he's somebody who, you know, a lot of players do, but, the, you know, the fans can disagree on certain players. But there was no doubt about it when Longstaff came in. He, he changed he changed the dynamics of the team uh, last year. And I think Eddie Howe pinpointed, you know, the fact that he's he's, he's got fantastic fitness. His endurance is, is, is probably one of the best within the team. But it's also the fact that he can pick a pass. Um, you know he, he's got he's got good vision. Um, you know technically he's very good. So if Tenali is is not a hundred percent today, but is, is is good enough to be on the bench, um, is it an opportunity then? Do you think for Sean Longstaff to come in? Do you think do you think that's who how we'll select? Yeah, especially with the Champions League upcoming as well. I think that Eddie Howe will chop and change. And he also has to think in his selection too about who's travelled during the international break that he's also going to want in the Champions League. So this is not really a great game for Newcastle in terms of where it lies in the calendar. And as a consequence, I think we will see a number of changes from that away defeat to Brighton. And Longstaff is a logical person to come in for sure. I think with Tenali... It's very important to understand he's young and is not the finished product. So even though there's that sky high ceiling and even though he's been starting in games, it is very possible that 
he needs a little bit more time to develop and get up to Premier League pace. We've seen flashes of brilliance for sure. And I think it was the same with Bruno Guimaraes when he first came into the side. He sort of hit the ground running and everyone said, brilliant. He's a player that has just taken to the Premier League like a duck to water. But Tonali, I think, in the position that he plays, will at times get found out due to the fact that he's young. And when he joined, you may remember that I said that the strengths he has are that he's confident, he can get into the box as he's already shown, he can be clinical when he's in the box and score the odd goal, and he's a progressive passer. But when you have that confidence and you're young, you can lack that little bit of discipline and you can lack that little bit of awareness sometimes of who's around you. And we all know that the Premier League punishes that. So a progressive passer is by nature more risk-reward. And that means that you might give the ball away, trying to be positive, trying to be progressive. And maybe because of the big price tag, everybody is just under the assumption that he's this top talent, which is true, and that he can be thrown straight in. But maybe his minutes need a little bit managing for the sake of his development. Longstaff is probably more reliable at this stage, even though there might be more excitement around Tonali. So I do think that Longstaff could end up starting against Brentford, and that will obviously give Tonali a little bit of a rest to recuperate from a minor injury and then maybe come back and play in the Champions League, which, of course, is a big game for him because it's a reunion away at Milan. Mm, yeah, big, big games coming fast and furious for, for Newcastle United, but it'll be interesting to see whether Longstaff does uh, get back into the team today. And I think it's, it's, it's a perfect game for him, I've got to be perfectly honest, but we will wait and see. It's not the only positional change that Eddie Howe may be forced to make. And again, just looking back at his press conference yesterday... Um, he, he was asked about the Longstaff situation on numerous mm. occasions, but he was also he was also talking about the um, the fact that he doesn't make wholesale changes when things aren't broken. And he pointed to the Liverpool game as, as as an example. You know that game should have been out of sight for Newcastle. That should have been three points. Then Nunes equalises. You're thinking, well, we're going to go away with a point. We would have all been devastated with that. And Nunes does the damage, and, and Newcastle walk away with nothing. That game. Um, you know, the, the team performed well, apart from that last 10 minutes. And then they go into a game against Brighton where, you know, they started well, but then ultimately, you know, collapsed uh, defensively. And, you know, they, they just didn't recover from that. They, you know, the back end of the game, they, they did play they did play well enough. Wilson scores a goal and, you know, but it's too little too late. But I understand where he was coming from, that you don't make wholesale changes when nothing's mm. broken. However, what we have seen in the last few games is, Isaac up front, um, you know, ploughing alone for up front. Service hasn't been great towards him. And, you know, just hitting that little bit of a dry patch. I know, we're, you know, again, we're not, we're not highlighting this as a, as a major issue because, you know, it's only the start of the season. But Wilson, when he comes on, looks lively, scores goals, and, you know, is probably in the best form of his career at Newcastle. So is it time maybe to give... You know, Wilson, that opportunity to start today and put Isaac on the bench? Yeah, I think that Isaac deserved to start the season and vindicated that decision with two goals in the opening game against Aston Villa. And although you're right that the service has dried up, you look at how he also finished last season and quite clearly he is the solution centrally within this 4-3-3, which is unfortunate for Callum Wilson, who, let's not forget, also scored on opening day against Aston Villa. But if they're to play together, then it's far more logical 
because of the versatility of Isaac to play Wilson through the centre and then move Isaac out as a wide forward. And your only other solution quite clearly is to play them all together. But then Eddie Howe would decide potentially to move away from the 4-3-3 and play two up front. And I don't think that that is what he's comfortable with, the side is comfortable with, and it's far too radical anyway at this stage of the season because Newcastle showed against Aston Villa that they can score goals. This is ultimately just a very difficult run. And I'm not surprised in any way that Newcastle didn't score against Man City. I was surprised, obviously, that they lost to Liverpool, but I wasn't surprised that they didn't score goal after goal after goal. But the disappointment there is clearly that they did have a numerical advantage for a long point of the game. And then obviously Brighton at home especially are just a very good side. So it wouldn't surprise me if, again, Eddie Howe sticks to his selection, sticks to his principles and sees whether he can replicate what he got last October against Brentford, albeit in a game that Newcastle were flying and Brentford were a little bit more flat in my opinion, but they won that game at home by five goals to one. And it sort of gave them the momentum going forwards a little bit. And in that game, I think Bruno got a brace from memory. Miguel Almiron scored, and it's important that he gets going as well. Otherwise, he might lose his place in the team as well. So I think that the difficulty for Howe is not so much reacting to all the points that we've mentioned. It's reacting to the fact that they've got Milan and away from home, and it's on a Tuesday in the Champions League. And that's the challenge. And I think it's also an early kickoff from memory as well. So it's not ideal for Newcastle to have to play late, yes, on a Saturday, but still late on a Saturday, and then have to jump immediately to a Tuesday. And I believe it's an early kickoff, a 5.45 kickoff, because that doesn't give you a lot of time. And how has to prioritise the Champions League, because although the group's very exciting in terms of travel and teams, if you're only looking at getting out the group, it's obviously the group of death. And that's unfortunate because Newcastle were in pot four. So Milan becomes, I would say, the priority just because we're so early in the season. And I don't think that Howe's hit the panic button yet as far as Newcastle pushing and qualifying for Champions League football due to the fact that the fixtures that they've had have been very difficult so far. So you have to make some changes for Brentford. Like I say, you've got players that have travelled back from international football from long distances. You've got that Tuesday game. And this is why I think that we might, for example, see Callum Wilson start the game. But whether or not that's an indication that Howe's giving him a chance and that Howe's decided that Wilson's better through the centre for what Newcastle need now, I'm not so sure. I think it will be more due to the fact that three or four changes will be made because the ones he wants to start, which is probably Isaac leading the line, will end up coming back in for that Milan game. So this is quite intriguing for me, the selection. And I almost think that we should be reserving judgment based on the starting 11 we see today until we then see the starting 11 against Milan, because we might understand why there's a starting 11 today solely based on the starting 11 that we then see against Milan, rather than saying, wow, Lewis Hall's got a start, Longstaff's got a start, Wilson's got a start, Howe's finally decided to tinker, Howe's finally decided to change, Howe's finally realised the problem. And then you look at the Milan starting 11 and you're like, oh, actually he made all those changes only because we've got Champions League on a Tuesday night. And I do suspect that it is with Champions League in mind against Brentford today, that we'll see some of the changes we've mentioned, not just 
because Howe realises that there's a few problems in midfield and in the front line. Yeah, again, it's it's uh, it's Eddie Howe's job to get this right. Squad rotation, something he's going to have to get used to uh, with the Champions League on the uh, on the horizon. Uh, interesting one is Anthony Gordon as well. I mean, Anthony Gordon has started each game. Um, you know, he finished last season on a flourish with a goal. Uh, he scored again. Broke his you know broke his duck at the back end of last season. Scored again early early doors this season. What, what what's his best position, Ben? In, in your mind, because at the moment he's been stuck out on the left, and you know we we see the we see the predictable substitution now. You know Gordon off, Barnes on, and um, you know that that seems to be you know the, the the thing in Eddie Howe's mind that they're both similar players that both both mm. bring something different to the game. But what what where would you like to see Gordon play? Well, I think that Anthony Gordon's best position in his mind is the central striker, but he's well down the pecking order to play there. He can technically in game management alternate with Isaac who can go out wide. He can be brought on from the bench as a central striker and that might be an option, but then he would get less minutes or he can stay where he is. And ultimately he's caught between being a wide forward and at times being a winger. And anybody that watched him during the under 21 Euros that England won will have seen that he thrived in a more central position. So Gordon's best position is definitely as a central striker, but Gordon's best position at Newcastle doesn't really factor that in because he's not going to supplant in the pecking order either Isaac or Wilson in the short term. So he has to think about where his best Newcastle position is or how he can get the best out of his current position is probably the more accurate way to put it. Because if he's just waiting to play in his best position, then the honest truth is that Anthony Gordon's best position for Newcastle United is on the bench. And the reason I say that is not to be critical. It's because what's his best chance of playing centrally? It's coming off the bench and getting half an hour centrally because Isaac or Wilson hasn't performed. Whereas if he's starting games, I think it's less likely that 60 minutes into a game, he'll be moved into a central position and then somebody wide will come on because then you kind of have to chop and change a little bit more. So maybe Gordon has to think long and hard about whether he can make that wide left forward position or winger position work because otherwise he might be more effective as that kind of super sub, but I don't know how happy he'll be with that. And it's a great headache for Eddie Howe to have, but it's not ideal for Gordon. And the truth is, based solely on form, and if I'm being completely critical over a very small amount of games, I would argue that neither Almiron nor Gordon at the moment deserve their place in the side. And if you could keep everyone happy doing it a slightly different way, and I'm not saying you'd get the best out of Isaac you could make an argument that you've got to try Isaac wide so you can play Wilson central and then you've got to give Harvey Barnes a start and see how that front three do. Or you've got to move Joe Linton into the front three and then again play Wilson centrally and Isaac out wide, which is what we saw at times during last season. The challenge is Isaac is not as effective in that wide position, but Gordon isn't as effective in that wide forward position. And Almiron isn't the same player as he was before the World Cup either. So there's a lot of different question marks. And I think the last thing I would say on the front line, which is not an excuse for Isaac, but it's a factor in all of this, is what does Gordon want to do? score goals. That's not to say that he won't lay it on. That's not to say that he can't be effective in games and provide goal contributions, but he sees himself as a central forward, which means he wants to score goals. 
with Almiron, he's a little bit more selfless. But the Almiron that really took the ball by the horns in the first half of last season, got his head down, ran, scored, got into the box. It's the same for Isaac. So you've got three goal scorers. So who's providing the assists? Because Joe Linton's deeper, Bruno's in the centre, Tonali's not really known to be an assist machine. So it actually puts pressure on your two fullbacks to get forwards and then allow Gordon or Almiron to go centrally, and then you get the service. But when you're playing good teams, they stop your fullbacks from coming forwards, and then the service is starved, and this is one of the issues. Whereas with Harvey Barnes, he's not thinking really about getting goal, 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 even though he scored 13 Premier League goals for Leicester last season. He's thinking about who he can interchange with, who he can deliver the ball to, how he can basically get a goal contribution. And that's why I think that he would be a better starter at this stage for what Newcastle need over Anthony Gordon, just because he's a little bit more selfless in how he plays. Yeah, I, I think you're right, mate. It's going to be an interesting, it's going to be an interesting situation uh, with Anthony Gordon. I like him. I think he's, I think he's direct. I think he gets stuck in. And I think that's something that, you know, Newcastle's team sometimes lacks a little bit when, you know, Joe Linton's off the boil. And I think he's almost replaced Joe Linton in that respect over the last couple of games. But yeah, I I genuinely think um, Anthony Gordon will play a big part this season. I do, I'm not one for panicking. I think we'll do, I think we'll do okay this season, mm. but it will, it will be interesting to see how things progress. I, I think the, the big thing that stood out for me at the Brighton game, Ben, was, you know, Botman was out. We don't often have to deal with that. We moved Dan Byrne into centre-half. We brought Matt Target back in at left-back. And I think our frailties were showing a little bit there. A lot of people were calling for a centre-half in the summer. We need to bring a centre-half in. Shares mm. getting Cher's getting you know a little bit older. Um, you know, Dan Byrne, maybe not the left-back that would, you know, he's going to be with us for, for, for much longer. And, and, and is he going to be good enough going into big, big games like the Champions League games? But I think it just showed, it showed the frailties. Obviously, those two haven't played together, Dan Byrne and Cher at centre-half before, you know, for, for a long, long time. But we just got caught out. We got caught napping. And Matt Target, the lack of football that he's had over the last year year and a bit, hasn't helped either. And I think there were some defensive frailties showing up there a little bit, Ben. Yeah, I think Newcastle have been blessed, haven't they, all of last season with a consistent back four and an incredible back four that kept a ton of clean sheets. So there has just been a natural assumption that, there's strong foundations at the back. But as you say, one injury or one change, and it's a very different story. And that's all credit to Sven Botman because it shows you just how good and consistent he's been. I think that Byrne can slot into that role, but Byrne and Cher, as you say, haven't played together as much. And I think that Byrne will get caught out a little bit when defenders hang on his shoulder when he's playing in a central centre-back position whereas maybe if it was a back three he would be a little bit more comfortable but the last thing that Howe wants to do is adapt his formation because he lacks the depth this is Newcastle's formation this is how Newcastle succeeded last season it shouldn't be about changing the formation to suit the fact that you have to move burn into centre-back or target at left-back it should be a case that you've got the depth to continue playing your 4-3-3 and this is where if Newcastle continue to qualify for Europe, they can get a slightly bigger squad. They can break their wage bill a little bit more. They can start to have two people in each position. I think it's normal when you've come from where Newcastle were, which was ultimately fighting relegation when the new ownership group came in. 
that you're not going to be able to break the bank and just bring in player after player after player. And part of Newcastle's success has been about momentum. And with that momentum comes squad unity because players feel like they're part of something very tight-knit. And you don't want a bunch of players just sitting there on the bench waiting and feeling unhappy. So it's definitely a balance, but I agree with you that there's one more centre-back needed. And I'm sure that that will be addressed in January. I think it wasn't addressed towards the back end of the window because Newcastle didn't want to buy for the sake of buying. And they also had to think about financial fair play. And they always knew that Byrne could come in and play centre-back. And the beauty, of course, if Byrne does come in and have to cover at centre-back is that you've got Matt Target and you've got Lewis Hall as well. So they're not short of left-back options now. And you've got Kieran Trippier technically that can swap over to that left-hand side. And then there's the right-back option in Tino Livramento as well. So there's plenty of depth at full-back, but one more centre-back is needed. Interesting you mentioned the Kieran Trippier switch because obviously for England, he played left-back um, and played it played it really, really well. We've signed Lewis Hall. Um, we've also signed Libramento. We've got options now at full-back. We still have other players on our books who could fill the fill the role, of course. Paul Dummett, Matt Target, we've already spoken about. Um, but, but from from my perspective, you know, I wouldn't be I wouldn't be too concerned if they moved Trippi at the left back after watching his performance midweek and maybe given the chance to Libramento to to fill that right back role. But alternatively, I'd be happy to keep Kieran Trippier on the right and give Lewis Hall a chance. So it's all about those options and about all about having that like uh, you know players that you can adapt. Yeah, it's all about also asking Trippier whether he wants to play right back or left back and then defining, I think, your selection on that because he's so important to Newcastle United. I think if Trippier moves over the left-hand side, it might just get the best out of Anthony Gordon, which is another key point in all of this. Almiron's the kind of player that gets plenty of the ball, is involved in games. He's just not really got that consistency of finishing that he had during that Amazing, but almost freak run in the first half of last season. Whereas Gordon, I think, might appreciate having Trippier on that left-hand side. And then you've got Trippier, Joe Linton, Gordon, which is a very good combination and might give Newcastle a little bit of balance and versatility. So it's all about asking Trippier whether he would enjoy and be prepared to swap sides and then defining your selection from there. Having seen a lot of Livramento and Lewis Hall, I think that Trippier on the left, Livramento on the right is the better decision for Newcastle at this point if you're just looking at the development of Hall and Livramento. Because Livramento is actually a very developed player. He's just had torrid luck with injuries to the point where he barely played last season. So for Livramento, it's about getting him back up to match sharpness and confidence as well. Because when you have the kind of horrible injury like he had, it can be very difficult to return with the same tenacity immediately. Because even if consciously you're thinking, I'm back, there's a part of you in games that is still a little bit worried about picking up another injury. So there is a psychological element too. But Livramento, when he was fit for Southampton, was a quality Premier League player who was flying, who was developing, who was providing service to others, who was very intelligent. And that is what Newcastle need. He's a modern Premier League fullback and he can also play on the right or the left. He hasn't played that much on the left-hand side, but he's capable of switching sides as well. And he can go and play in midfield too. So there's a lot to like about Livramento. And in the games where he has played and been fit, he's shown that he's capable of being a top Premier League player. So 
if he was utilised on the right and Trippier moved to the left, I think Newcastle could be quite confident in that. I think with Lewis Hall, it's a bit more interesting because he's got a high ceiling, but has never really had that consistency of game time from his spell at Chelsea and has a relatively big price tag, of course, as well, when the loan ends up turning into an obligation. And ultimately, at times, when Chelsea were in sort of free fall under Graham Potter, he was used in midfield, he was used as an inverted fullback, he was used as a regular fullback and never really looked comfortable. And I think at times he got relatively exposed. I think one of the games he played from memory, I might be wrong on this, but off the top of my mind, I think was at St. James's Park. And he also played away at Manchester City as well. And in both games, I thought he got found out and quite quickly. So Hall, I think the jury's out on, not in terms of his future, not in terms of him being a good signing for Newcastle United, but I mean specifically in terms of, do you want to throw him in today? Whereas Livramento, if he's fit, I think can be thrown in today. And that's why I would be tempted to say to Kieran Trippier, potentially, look, you played very recently as a left-back for England. So now's the best time to just do it again. Have a game against Brentford as left-back. We can always switch you. Put Livramento at right-back. See what happens. That's what I do. But I think because Howe is reticent about making change after change, tactical change, personnel change, positional change, it's probably more likely he'll ignore what I've just said, which is always a wise <laughs> thing to do, by the way. And I think that logically you would say, go Trippier, Share, Burn, Hall, and then you've got that decision to make over Longstaff, which I think is a change that will be made. And then again, he's at rested for Champions League, Wilson starting the game. I think Gordon might be rested and Harvey Barnes might come in. And that's what I think we'll see against Brentford today if I had to predict. But I think logically, if you really analyse it, I think the better move for Newcastle would be to at least try Trippier on the other side, give Livramento a start at right back. OK, uh, halfway through the show, time for the ads. A big thanks to all our sponsors, Skips and Bins. You can find them at skipsandbins.com or telephone 0800 2545 Email inquiries at skipsandbins.com. Website, skipsandbins.com. Easy contract free and pay-as-you-go waste collection. Big thanks to Mr. Vicky's Sources Handmade in Cumbria. You can order them from their website, mrvickys.co.uk or by telephone on 01768 210 102. A big thanks also to New Workwear. Uh, you can find them at newworkwear.com. They're an agile and dedicated workwear provider. Welcome back as well to United Travel. Uh, they are a UK coaches firm and they are based in uh, the Northeast. They've got 2024 tours and you can contact them on 01670 632. 460 or mobile 0791 4174 Email info at united and they've got a website which is unitedgrouptravel.com. There's no strangers on there to us, just people you haven't met yet. Big thanks to them for their sponsorship. Big thanks as well to Media Arts and they supply all the video technology. If you want to become a member and get a cup, a pen, a membership card and a scarf, then get your smartphone and put it over this QR code. It will take you straight to the membership pack. It's a £25 one-off fee. You can also go to NUFC Matters website 
and search membership pack to book today. If you want to help the channel, then subscribe to it by hitting the subscribe button. Hit the thumb up under the video to like the video and click share to share to your other social media. We're also available as a podcast on iTunes, Spotify and other podcast providers. Don't forget we help the food bank on this channel. If you want to do so virtually, go to nufcfansfoodbank.co.uk and make a donation today. The Alan Sheila raffle is back on. 150 tickets, £1 a ticket. Win a limited edition signed Alan Shearer ball. Enter the day at nufcmatters.com. Okay, you're back with NUFC Matters. Got uh, 30 minutes to go in the show. I just want to talk about the uh, the England Scotland uh, mm. internationals, uh, Ben. It was, I mean, it was a great it was a great game. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, not one really for watching England, but I, I did tune in. Um, England, of course, getting getting the result. But I just the atmosphere was great. You know, the the Scottish fans always you know bring the party to the occasion. Mm. The anthem, you know, Flower of Scotland, and it ju- it just made for a really good occasion. I thought, is it is it time to bring the home internationals back? I think that if we're only being selfish and we want the rivalries, then yes. I think if we're looking at the fixture calendar and congestion, then no. Ultimately, international football for me at the moment, given the calendar, needs to have a purpose, and I understand that a purpose can come through rivalry, and a purpose can come from the fact that people get to travel to these games a little bit more and enjoy them. And that's the beauty of having a home nations tournament that you're going to get away fans. You're going to get rivalry, not in the same way as if ultimately England fans are having to contemplate whether they want to pay and go abroad. It's a lot easier to jump on a train up to Scotland or vice versa down to Wembley or wherever it takes place. And by the way, if you're going to do England, Scotland and you're going to do it in England, then do it at somewhere like St. James's Park rather than Wembley because then more Scottish fans would come down and it obviously allows for England to play up north, very close to Scotland, and you would again get a great atmosphere. So I think that if it's thought out on the fixture calendar and if it creates the rivalry like we saw in that last game, which, as you say, was superb, then I'm all for it. But what I'm not for is just tournament for the sake of tournament or tournament that goes against another game or another qualifier or another thing that's the priority because if you have a home nations for example in this cycle then you're obviously juxtaposing it against qualifiers so there's a very fair chance that when the home nations comes along you would get a situation whereby certain players pull out or certain players get injured or the overall standard is not as good And then on top of that, I think you have to ask the question, is too much of these type of games ultimately going to dilute the product? And do we get the kind of atmosphere of England against Scotland or England against whoever or Scotland against whoever simply because it doesn't happen as much? And naturally, people will point to the Six Nations and say, that's always brilliant. That's always got the rivalry. That's always got the intrigue. But the difference is that the Six Nations is one of the premier rugby tournaments around, whereas a home nations is not going to get you qualification into the Euros or the World Cup. And even if you put a trophy there, I'm not convinced that it would be ranked that high in terms of the mindset of either managers, players, or even potentially fans. So 
I'd love to see these games because the atmosphere is brilliant. And I think when they happen, they're special and they're enjoyable and they are competitive. But the last thing we want to do is keep adding things just for the sake of adding them to the international calendar with no real purpose beyond rivalry or beyond a one-off game or a one-off tournament because otherwise we're in a position where ultimately there are just too many games on the calendar and there's already too many games on the calendar. I mean, look at this week, for example, the England-Scotland game was great. I'm not denying that, but it was on a Tuesday. Then Newcastle have to return and play on a Saturday, which is no big deal. But remember, it wasn't just one game for England and Scotland. They'd come off the back as well of their previous matches too. So it was two games. Then you come back and you play. And then, as we've already said, you go from a Saturday evening game against Brentford today right into Champions League on a Tuesday. And I just think that it's already too many. So to change a friendly between Scotland and England into a mini tournament that involves the home nations. I'm all for it in terms of the rivalry, but I'm not all for it in terms of the calendar. Okay, big welcome to uh, Rai, who's in the chat. I do the breakfast show with him. He's a Borough fan. and They've got a big game at uh, Blackburn today. Uh, good luck to you, mate. Uh, I think you're going to need it. I've, I've took you for a draw today, mate. That, that, that'll <laughs> cheer you up. Uh, the, the other little uh, side note to the England-Scotland game, Ben, was um, the, the tug of war between Scotland and England over Elliot Anderson and, of course, now Harvey Barnes because both are eligible to play for England but also eligible to play for Scotland. Anderson, it looked as if he'd committed to, to, to following Steve Clark and John Carver's team um, but then withdrew with injury, which, of course, aroused suspicion uh, from, from the squad for the, for the two internationals last week. Um, just, just in your opinion, which would be the best for, for, for both those players? You know Barnes quite well as a, you know, as somebody who follows Leicester, obviously a former player of your, your parish. You know, what, would you, what would you advise the, the two guys to do? Yeah, I think Harvey Barnes would be nuts to pick Scotland. And that's no disrespect to Scotland. It's just the fact we're heading into a cycle where England, who stand a chance of winning the Euros, are going to be fixing on their squad for next summer and why wouldn't Harvey Barnes be able to force his way into contention now he's not in the championship with Leicester and he's off the back of a season where he scored 13 Premier League goals so I think for Barnes he has to have the ambition to want to play for England that's not me saying that England are better than Scotland that's not me saying that I always pick England because I'm English that's simply me saying that Harvey Barnes is 25 years of age which is quite old for a player trying to push his way into international football. So why, when he's won one cap already for England, push for Scotland now instead of make a really concerted effort at domestic level to try and get into Gareth Southgate's plans? And you do that until perhaps Christmas or January and see whether you're called up, see whether you're in contention for Euro 2024. And then if you're not in January then you've given it a go for England, who stand a realistic chance, of course, of winning the Euros. And then from there, you say, OK, maybe I'm going to try and pick Scotland instead. So I think it's an absolute no-brainer from the point of view of um, Barnes to be focusing solely on England at this point. I think with Elliot Anderson, it's a little bit different and it's a harder choice to make. And as you already said, the um, interesting thing about Elliot Anderson 
is just that um, you have um, a player who actually was part of the squad and then decided to pull out, whether that's due to injury, whether that's due to second thoughts. He's going to struggle in the position that he plays to get any regular game time anytime soon. So he has an opportunity to potentially commit to Scotland and then go and play at a Euros and not necessarily challenge to win it, but have that experience and get regular game time for his country, which will help his Newcastle chances. So for Elliot Anderson, I feel like you go and take the international game time, you go and be part of an international tournament, and then that further puts you in the shop window to get more regular starts as far as um, Newcastle are concerned. Look at Scott McTominay, for example. He's on fire at the moment for Scotland, and hopefully for him that will help his Manchester United chances as well. So it can work that way, and I think that's the best path for Elliot Anderson. But for Harvey Barnes, of course, he could go and say Scotland, he could go and also play in the Euros, but he's not going to challenge to win the Euros. And at 25 years of age, as an established Premier League player for Leicester last season with those 13 Premier League goals, I just think it feels a little bit unambitious. I think that it feels quite ambitious for Anderson to say, I'm going to decide early, I'm going to play Scotland, I'm going to play at a Euros, and then I'm going to make Newcastle pick me and start me. Um, in the short term, that feels quite ambitious to me. But for Barnes to say, I'm picking Scotland, to me, feels like a message of, I don't think I can get into that England team. And I think that Barnes should be saying, I think I can get into that England team. And that means he has to be patient and give his allegiance to England. Mm, interesting. We'll watch that with uh, with interest. There was a question came in earlier on from David, who says, uh, uh, Ben, do clubs use psychologists to help players get over mental impact of injuries? Now, I'll, I'll tie this in with uh, the Richarlison story, which has been interesting this week. Obviously, he's, he's not hit the hit the ground running at Tottenham. Um, and, you know, then we saw him have a, you know, have a, have a tear, um, you know, whilst on international duty. Never nice to see that um, in anybody in any walk of life. Um, and he has now said that he is going to, um, you know, to, to speak to a, a psychologist to see whether he can overcome what he must feel is a, is a bit of a mental block. But um, yeah, is this becoming a pattern in, in football now? Yeah, psychiatrists, I think, are one aspect, psychologists as well, and sports scientists. And they're three slightly different types of people, all of which have an element of overlap. And I think with a psychologist, they tend to be more sports scientists. And I think a psychiatrist is more when a player perhaps has a mental health issue outside of only football or feels like they need help outside of their training ground. A psychologist tends to be more on site and working with data. And a sports scientist tends to be looking at not just what's up here in the head, but everything that the data points to. So it is an interesting field because it's become quite fluid and a role that we know of the three that I've mentioned outside of sport, which is a bit more defined, is way less defined within football. And certain players, for example, want to go and sit with a therapist in a doctor's office and talk about things that they think might end up benefiting their football and do so discreetly and even away from their club. And others want to do it at the training ground where they're more comfortable and they want to feel like it's not something to do with their mental health or their mindset. It's something to do with science. It's something to do with data. So I think that it's all about breaking the stigma 
around mental health, but it's also about understanding that if your head's not right, you're not going to be the best footballer. And when we say your head's not in the right place, that can be Richarlison feeling unhappy with his performances and feeling like it's not down to football, it's not down to coaching, it's not down to data, it's not down to teammates, it's all up here in his head. So that's why he needs help and coaching. And that's what we should look at it as, coaching. It's not only about getting help in an extreme scenario. Deli Ali is a good example of that, for example. It can be about getting help and we need to speak openly about that and not have this stigma. It's not a taboo. But a lot of the time with the player, it's about not embracing necessarily the tools that are available to them on the training ground. And some of that is around sports science and some of that is around the mental side of the game. So, of course, a player can come back from an injury and not be the same. I think that Ricardo at my team, Leicester, was a great example of that. One of the best fullbacks, in my opinion, in the Premier League when he was fit and at his peak. And now he's playing in the championship for Leicester and has never really been the same since his long-term injury. So there's clearly a mental element to that. And with Liveramento, it might be the same. And then I think that sports scientists rather than psychologists also use for injury prevention to, to try and understand when a player might be susceptible to an injury and when a player returns from an injury, what does the data point to in terms of their risk of picking up another injury after it? And then they go to the manager and they may say minutes management's are needed or some kind of extra rehabilitation is needed or some kind of different gym work is needed. So we definitely don't want to be ruling out this part of the game because it might be the difference between somebody mentally recovering from an injury and getting back to their best or not. It might be the difference between somebody who returns to football and is not the same and doesn't know why. I speak to a lot of footballers who come back from long-term injury and many of them say to me in a weird way, they just spent so long on the sidelines that they got into a kind of form of lethargy or depression, whether clinical or not clinical. So then when they returned, they just weren't used to the dressing room. They weren't used to getting up at 7.30 in the morning. They weren't used to eating right. They weren't used to training with their peers. They weren't used to playing in a competitive environment, but they didn't realize it because how are you not going to be glad to have come back from nine months on the sideline and be playing football again? How are you not going to be enthused to be part of a dressing room on an away day in a hotel with your teammate wearing the team kit? How are you not going to be loving all of that? But if I made you for nine months get up at nine instead of seven and eat differently and not play football and not be on the bench when you were thrown back in it would be a little bit like being at a first day of a new school or something a little part of you would be like are they going to doubt me am I going to be back to my best do I know what I'm doing am I going to get injured again am I going to fit in with the new signings am I going to know all of the in jokes am I going to play because I've been out for so long and I think that can eat away at you and you cannot even realize it as a footballer, certainly based on some of the people that I speak to that have been out for a very long time. So these are all factors. And this is where a psychologist can be very helpful and other people within the medical industry or the sports science industry. So, yes, it is very commonplace, but unfortunately, it just differs from player to player. And some players are against it. Some players are for it. Some players are more open-minded about it. Some players don't even want to say that there's a problem and they're not feeling right. And if they don't flag the problem and they masquerade the problem, then maybe the club don't even realize. So we need to break down the stigma in all of this, because this isn't only about seeking help in the medical sense. This is about getting normal science-based help 
to be the best footballer that you can possibly be. And that obviously benefits everybody. And if you keep it a secret that you've got a problem where there's a very easy and readily available solution, then that's not just detrimental to you as a footballer. It's ultimately detrimental to your entire team as well. Yeah, definitely. OK, let's look ahead to the Champions League game. You've uh, We've touched on it a couple of times uh, today. AC Milan away, of course, is how Newcastle start their, their group stages. It is a 5.45 kick-off British summer time. And um, this is it. This is a great opportunity for Newcastle, really. This is, as Eddie Howe described it yesterday, this is their reward for last season's success. Mm. Um, you know, I think we've already discussed on here, you and I, Ben, about, you know, the difficulties of, you know, trying to accommodate European football within your season and, and finding that balance. But just, just looking in terms of excitement and, and you know, what, what, have, what have Newcastle United fans got to look forward to with a Champions League competition? Every single minute, to be honest with you, win, lose or draw. Away at Milan, incredible. PSG, first home game. Qatar, Saudi derby is it's being referred to by some. I'm sure Newcastle aren't really calling it that, nor are their fans, but we'll be seeing that, no doubt, in the media. And then the yellow wall at Dortmund, the first game's at home, the second game's away, and then it's, I think, away at PSG, and then the last game will be home to Milan. And these are just superb fixtures, to be perfectly honest with you, that Newcastle fans should enjoy, because last season they've earned this opportunity. And I think from talking to sources that even though you want both, there's two aims clearly across the season. One is to qualify for the Champions League and one is to get out of the Champions League group. And both are equally important aims. But if you forced Newcastle's hierarchy to pick one, it would obviously be qualified for the Champions League again because they look at this group and everybody appreciates that Newcastle are not the favourites to get out of the group. But I don't think there's a great deal between Newcastle, Milan, PSG or Dortmund. PSG on paper are the favourites to certainly get out of the group, whether in first or second. And then I think it's kind of a coin toss between Milan, Dortmund and Newcastle. And a lot will depend on who's able to pick up points at home, which is why if Newcastle can get something away from home, in the opening Champions League game, they suddenly stand a very realistic chance because I would fancy Newcastle to get something from PSG at home. I would fancy them to beat Dortmund at home. And if they need to, in that final game, beat Milan, I think they will. I remember last season, Chelsea had Milan in their group and Milan got battered home and away by Chelsea and Chelsea were a very poor team at that point. So Newcastle will be confident, I think, of getting minimum three points off Milan. And if they can get four points off Milan, then they stand a very realistic chance suddenly of getting out the group. So it's a big first game. I come back to what I said before as well about how changing the selection against Brentford so he can play his strongest 11 or what he perceives to be his strongest 11 against Milan. So it'd be interesting, for example, if Longstaff starts and does really well against Brentford, does he then earn his place on a Tuesday night? Or is how kind of pre-decided his selection for that game and also based on minutes management. But it's a superb occasion for Newcastle. And it's a shame in many ways because if they don't beat Brentford and then they lose to Milan, there'll be doom and gloom and there'll be pressure. And I really think that Newcastle have deserved to enjoy these trips, enjoy these moments because... Under Mike Ashley, it just looked like an impossible scenario that Newcastle would have Milan, PSG and Dortmund. And you know what? If you're going to get through a Champions League and go on a run, then come through this group. Because if you come through this group, it will be special if Newcastle get out the group. 
and then they can do anything because if you top the group ahead of PSG and therefore you get points off Dortmund to Milan and you get out the group, then the sky's the limit. You'll probably get an easier draw in the last 16 of the Champions League than you will in your group itself. So suddenly you feel like you can go on a run. And if you don't get out of this group, then there's no shame in it because you've had to face Milan, PSG and Dortmund. So enjoy the away days, enjoy the moment and use it as a gauge to again qualify for the Champions League, to raise your coefficient and to get in a better pot as a result. And then you'll get an easier group stage draw. So it might not feel it to fans if they just end up losing, losing, getting knocked out. But for me, it's win-win. They're fantastic fixtures and if Newcastle don't go through, it's a learning experience. It's incredible away days. It's brilliant atmospheres at St. James's Park. And every game is top quality opposition. If they do get through, it's a fairy tale. And if they get out the group, I think they'll go quite far. Because like I say, I think the knockout stage draw will probably end up being easier for Newcastle United than what they've had to navigate with, especially obviously if they end up winning the group. So all of it's very positive for me, but then I'm not a Newcastle fan. So I would say that because it's mouthwatering. I think the only thing I don't like, just briefly coming back to what I said before, is the time of the game. And you don't always get choice because of how the draw works and no club is going to always be happy. But frankly, I think it's ridiculous that the Premier League would give Newcastle a five o'clock game instead of a 12.30 game or a three o'clock game. Why when Liverpool, I don't always agree with Klopp, right? But Liverpool are playing at 12.30 and Liverpool are not in the Champions League. So their European game is on a Thursday. Newcastle are in the Champions League and they're playing at 5.30. So given that Newcastle have got less players involved in international breaks than Liverpool, why would you not give Liverpool 12.30 or at least three o'clock and then give uh, why would you not give Newcastle 12.30 or 3 o'clock and then give Liverpool the late kickoff and then Newcastle have got a little bit more time before they head into a Tuesday game? Or more logically, why on earth would you give Newcastle or Milan a 5.45 kickoff and not an 8 o'clock kickoff? I mean, it's even worse for Milan, by the way, uh, because they've got a Milan derby, which is another ridiculous um, fixture to schedule immediately after an international break and then have them having to go into a home game against Newcastle at 5.45 because they're not going to be able to rest a single player. They're going to have no. to play their strongest 11 and then put their strongest 11 out against Newcastle as well. And I feel sorry for Milan. So I, I, I know it's only a few hours. I know everyone has to have international break but it just seems utterly, utterly ridiculous to me when you look at that Milan derby, when you look at the time of the Brentford game, when you look at the international break, it seems farcical to me that somebody would say 5.45 on a Tuesday night, not a Wednesday, not eight o'clock on a Tuesday is the best time for these two teams to play football. But it is what it is. And um, it will still obviously be a very enjoyable occasion. I think we all know the answer to this. It comes down to global uh, viewing, uh, who watches it and, and where they watch it. And it comes down to advertising and stuff like that. And football football's just completely lost the plot as far as I'm concerned on that. But that's that's one for another day. Kevin, yes, um, senior messages. Thanks, mate. He, he says, it's the only time you can watch live. He says, on our new stadium, potential new stadium, why can't we build a temporary stadium on Leeser's Park to allow us to reduce in James's Park and put us back to the original state? 
I, there's a lot of consultations going on at the minute. And I think that's that's one thing to remember, Kevin, that um, decisions are going to be made at some mm. point, but um, it's not going to happen overnight. And, and these things do take time. Planning permission to have something simple done at your house uh, takes a long time. And as for your question about building the global fan base, why can't you watch the Amazon documentary? It comes down to, you know, comes down to, you know, who allows what to be broadcast in what country and, and, and it's as simple as that it's the same with films um and tv series they're, they're not they're not always the same and yeah unfortunately the, the the masses sometimes tend to miss out because tv companies tend to go with the um the you know the, the countries where there's the biggest viewing figures or where they want to make the biggest impact it's a, it's a strange situation okay we've got to look ahead we've only got three minutes left look ahead at brentford and Newcastle united take on brentford 5 30 kickoff today live on sky Emil Kraft, Joe Willock, uh, both remain sidelined. There's optimism that Sven Botman will return. Potentially, um, Tenali could be on the bench um, if, he, if he is fit. Uh, Elliot Anderson is untroubled by the issue that uh, caused him to withdraw from the Scotland team as well. As for Brentford, well, there's no Ivan Tony. Um, he still remains banned after admitting to illegal betting charges. Mm. And uh, the referee for today's game is Craig Porson, who does have a habit of booking Joe Linton. He has booked him. <laughs> Uh, in three of the four games that he took charge of last season. Uh, VAR, which is often switched off, is John Brooks. Uh, so, uh, from our perspective, um, I've gone on the Amigos for a 2-1 win. I think Newcastle will get a narrow win today. I don't think it's mm. going to be an easy game. They never are against Brentford. They are a very good uh, attacking team. They certainly play on the front foot. Um, what's your views, Ben? What's your prediction today? I think that Brentford have been draw specialists this season, point against Spurs, point against Palace, point against Bournemouth as well. And most of their games have been tight. They looked relatively good against Fulham, but Fulham ultimately in that game for the last kind of half an hour or so had a man sent off. And I think that when Tim Ream was sent off in that 3-0 win, it was only 1-0 to Brentford at that point. Brentford for me, um, even though they're eighth in the table at the moment, have been quite poor and they're missing Ivan Tony. So I think Newcastle will win the game. I think it will be a little bit more open than your prediction. I think that they'll head into Milan with a few goals behind them. I think 3-1 is going to be my prediction. Uh, it wouldn't surprise me if it's even 4-1 or 5-1 because if Newcastle score early, they tend to get going and they beat Brentford last season 5-1 as well. But I'm going to be a bit more conservative and say 3-1 to Newcastle. And then I think that selection-wise, we'll know very soon, officially, in about 20 minutes, uh, which is a disaster for me, by the way, because I didn't do the fantasy team before we did this live show. So I'm a little bit panicked now that my uh, team uh, is going to be poorly picked for this week. But I think that we will see Longstaff start. Um, let's see whether we get those other changes in terms of uh, Wilson uh, with a view to that Champions League game. But it's difficult for Eddie Howe now because I was looking at the fixtures and due to Champions League, due to League Cup, due to, on paper, some easier games, there's a lot of opportunity to kind of tinker now. And he does have to be careful not to over-tinker because you could make an argument, you make changes today, then you restore your starting 11 for Milan. But then if you restore your starting 11 for Milan, what do you do away at... Sheffield United, you probably make changes again because you've got Manchester City in the EFL Cup and you can't play a totally foreign 11 in that game if you're going to take it seriously. And I think Newcastle have to. Then you've got home to Burnley and you're like, OK, we're back to the Premier League. They should be winning that game. 
But then again, on the 4th of October, you've got PSG and then you've got to go away at West Ham. And seemingly with all these Champions League games that I've seen, um, and again, I think it's utterly ridiculous. I, I don't know how the fixture calendar crops this up so randomly, but um, and it may not be for every single game, by the way. So I apologize if I've got this wrong, but I can't think of a game. Um, I'm sounding like a Newcastle fan here, by the way, because I'm going on my rants about Newcastle time team. fixtures. But aren't they like away in pretty much every single Champions League game? I think first five games, all of the games after the Champions League matches um, yeah. are away from home, which mm-hmm. is utterly ridiculous. So again, you're forced to do that extra bit of travel. You're forced to chop and change. And I, I know when the Premier League fixtures come out, you can't predict where the draw is going to take you in the Champions League. So it is supposedly done at random. Uh, And I stand corrected if you can show me the other Champions League teams uh, and they've all got five games away from home in their opening five Champions League um, matches the game after, then fine. It is just how it works. But it it seems very strange to me. So again, when you look at that run of fixtures, how's constantly going to have to think about changing, changing, changing. And my worry for Newcastle, because they don't have the same depth as the other teams in the Champions League, is these changes are going to cost them points in the Premier League. So this is why, again, it's very important that they beat Brentford now because there's a fair chance that there'll be points dropped due to Champions League hangovers that result in them losing points and falling a bit further behind. So St. James's Park, home game, teams that they're expected to beat on paper, they've got to start winning these games. Otherwise, by Christmas, they might be too far behind. Ben, as always, a fantastic hour. Credit to the jumper from Ian Toon Trader. He's been putting messages in about that jumper all the way through just to get a mention. He does this all the time. Uh, but yeah, great to see the jumper back, uh, even though it means colder weather. And uh, have a great weekend. Well done to Leicester last night. That is your team. That is Good, your first yeah. love. They're blessed at top of the league, mate. Could be an early return to the Premier League. But uh, look forward to getting you on again soon, mate. I'm going to play out with uh, Toon Stato, who will take you through the stats for today's game. Take care, Ben. All the best, everyone. Hello, lads and lasses. Another huge game this weekend before the Milan journey on Tuesday. Brentford at St. James's Park after three defeats in a row for Newcastle, so it's a huge game for us. We haven't lost four in a row since January 2021 under Steve Bruce, when actually we went on to lose five in a row before we beat Everton at Goodison. At the same time, we have won seven out of the last eight games against Brentford in all league games since 1992, scoring 24 in the process. Brentford, on the other hand, are a team in form. They have only one defeat in the Premier League in their last 11 games. That was one new against Liverpool back in May. They're still unbeaten this season with one win and three draws. Actually, in all three of their draws, they took the lead, which makes them the team with most lost points from winning positions in the league. At the same time, they're without Ivan Tony. And since the start of last season, without him, they have played nine, won five and drawn four. They don't have a single defeat with uh, Brian Beumo taking the leading role in the meantime. At the same time, Nick Pope has only one clean sheet in his last 15 games. That was back in May against Leicester in the famous game that secured qualification for the Champions League. And only two clean sheets in the last 22 games, while the stats of conceded shots per game are more or less similar. Maybe we have an uh, issue in defense. 
Let's see what will happen on Sunday and uh, let's hope that this is the turning point in the season and we go on to another Champions League slot. Away the lads!